Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for the book of Romans. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who inspired the Apostle Paul to write it and to give it to us. And even though it was written in another language, we thank you for the translations that make it so very clear for us. And we pray this afternoon as we turn our minds and hearts toward you, that you will be our real teacher and our helper. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we left chapter 5 yesterday, and we got ready to start on the part about the second Adam, or the last Adam, as it's called. And um, this is, uh, oh, here's my professor, good. Um, so this is a, a very um, uh, neat area, and it's an area sometimes that has been and can be misunderstood. But let's start with verse 12. Therefore, and you're following in your lesson, I should get my lesson opened up here so that I am not too far off. Verse 12, Therefore, just as one man's, um, one man's sin entered through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all have sin. I talked a little bit yesterday about original sin because um, our Roman Catholic friends believe that we're all guilty for Adam's sin. As Adventists, we don't believe that. We believe, though, that sin did enter the world through how many people? Through one per person. By the way, why does he not say it entered through one woman? I want you to think about that a little bit. Now, what did he say? I said he left Adam in charge, and uh, he was the steward and the manager of the office. That's not too far off. He's he's not too far off. I think it's saying that if he would have been the only one that sinned, it would have affected her only. But when Adam sinned also, it affected the whole world then. Okay. Is it fair to say that when Adam when Satan took Eve down, he had not yet conquered the world? He conquered a piece of it. But he had not conquered the world at that point. So he had to take Adam down. And the world doesn't come under the dominion of Satan until he takes down Adam. That's why you don't have a second Eve. You have a second Adam. And the reason for that is not because... I, let me hasten and put the disclaimers in here in case I get in trouble. I'm, I'm married to a wonderful woman. I have a daughter and I love them both. And I have a son too. God loves his daughters just as much as he loves his sons. Okay, we all clear on that? Okay. And uh, value is the same in God's eyes. Okay, that's not the issue. But there are issues here. Because God made Adam the leader. He put him in charge. So the only way that Satan could take dominion of the world is by taking down Adam. 
So, but he, Adam's not going to be, I'm sorry ladies, in this, in this particular incidence, you still with me? Adam is not going to be quite as easy to get as Eve. Yes, you're okay with Some people won't agree with that, it's okay. I, her grace to a being her, Adam gave his up to a Well, just follow my logic here. Okay. Just follow my logic here just a little bit. When you go to the first chapter of Job, who shows up to meet with the sons of God? Satan, and the Bible calls him Satan. It doesn't call him Lucifer, it calls him Satan. And Satan is not welcomed, he's not rejected, but he's asked a question. What is the question that God asks Satan? What are you doing here? Exactly, where did you come from? What are you doing here? Satan is ready for that because he knows his, his presence is going to be challenged by God himself. And so what does Satan respond? Do you remember his response? To and fro on the what? On the earth. Well, that's what administrators do. Am I right, Elder Ratsara, Pastor? I'm not, I don't run everything going on in this camp meeting, but you'll see me riding my little cart, you'll see me popping up here, and I'm popping up there, and I'm checking on this. I got Jim Mitchiff answering to me. I've got a lot of people doing lots of stuff, but I'm not doing all that stuff because that's not my job. My job is to make sure that everybody else is, that's all running well. Delegating responsibility. Yeah, I show up at the juniors. I show up the, at the crater roll. I show up at all the divisions. I show up at the conference office, and I don't ever give anybody necessarily a schedule that I'm coming. Not that I'm trying to surprise anybody, but I'm just doing my job. That's why I'm all over everywhere. So if you ask me where I came from, I came from camp meeting. If you ask me what I'm doing there, I came from camp meeting and I'm walking and riding my golf cart all over camp meeting. But the one that comes closest to that would be Jim Mitchiff and the next one would be Craig Harris because they have management responsibilities. Most everybody else is focused on whatever they're focused on. So God doesn't argue with Lucifer. He challenges him, though, or, or Satan. He challenges him. He says, oh, and this tells you that there was an ongoing argument between God and Satan, an ongoing argument. And it's found in the word consider. Have you considered? That means that there's been consideration before, you understand. There's been a debate before. And have you considered my servant Job? Now right there, you got a problem because Satan claims the world as his, that we're all supposed to be his servants, and now God's claiming in Satan's domain that he's got a servant, and then he delists, he's blameless, he's all those wonderful things. And you know the rest of that story. So uh, Satan took that, that legal, if you please, in a sense, or at least God let him claim it for a while, took that legally for a while in order that he can now represent us in heaven. Now, if you were listening to Steve Bohr's sermons, 
one of his sermons noted, and I thought well done, that in Revelation chapter 12, when Satan was cast out, that was kind of like the second casting out in a sense, Jesus rested from Satan the dominion. Now listen to the temptation of the wilderness. Satan says, he's desperate, and he says, I'll give you all of this if you'll just fall down and worship me. Well, Jesus wasn't that stupid. He, worship suggests that you are... So Satan would lose nothing in that. What he was trying to do is give Jesus an easy way out, and Jesus said, no, I'll not take the easy way out. I will not get the earth back by worshiping you. I will get the earth back by your eviction. And that's exactly what happened at the cross. The resurrection, Satan lost the right to represent planet earth. Now who represents planet earth? It's Christ. And Christ represents it because he's the second Adam. Now, coming back to this, this whole thing. Now, let me... Let me give, um, let me put this, let me level the ground here just a little bit. Let me level the ground. The promise of a deliverer, of a second Adam, if you please, was made to who? First. No. E. Your seed will crush the head of the serpent. So Jesus comes, uh, let me add this, Leader, uh, leadership is influence. As one person said, nothing less, nothing more. Leadership is influence. Nothing less, nothing more. So just keep that in a moment for there. When Jesus comes back as the second Adam, and I'm going to delve into that in just a moment, He comes back as the second Adam, but He also comes back as the seed of the woman. And why is that important? Because it reflects what God, God's divine creation order before sin. And the creation order before sin gave Adam and Eve two different spheres of influence and leadership. Adam's was to be the manager, if you want to put it that way, of the family and of the earth. He was to oversee the earth. And Eve was to be his co-partner. Ellen White says she was not taken from his feet or his head. She was taken from over his heart because she was neither to be his head or his foot. Isn't that a beautiful picture? She was to be his co-partner, but her influence would be most seen with the children, the next generation. There's an old saying that says, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. So, and that's why Paul, we, we miss what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, when Paul says that the woman would be, if she's faithful, will be saved by childbirth. He's just reflecting Genesis. He's not saying that that's a legalistic thing. 
He's simply saying if she's faithful to her duty, if she shows faithfulness, she's going to have great influence. Um, you know, where do the kids go first? To their fathers or to their mothers? I know where mine go. I can't speak to yours. <laughs> and they're grown. And that doesn't mean we don't have a good relationship, we don't have love, but you know who, who they call first? And usually if they want some influence with me, guess who they go to? <laughs> that's, that's leadership. may not have quite the title. So Jesus comes as the second Adam and as the seed of the woman. Okay. We live in a sinful society. We live in a society that has turned a lot of things upside down. We have men who have abandoned their wives and their families for lust, a lot of that. We have women who have been left as both mother and father of families. Um, I was just listening this morning uh, to the reports from the divisions and from one of the divisions, one of the younger divisions, they take prayer requests. And the leader of the division says most of the prayer requests are for their fathers. And because um, that's because uh, men have abandoned their responsibilities to their wives. They've abandoned their leadership positions uh, to their wives. And when I say leadership, I'm not talking about dictatorial leadership. I'm talking about the leadership that's described in Ephesians chapter 5, where it pictures Christ as the head of the church, and so the man is to be the head of his home. What did Christ do for his church? He gave his life for his church. So a man should be ready to lay down his life for his family because he's their leader. That doesn't mean he doesn't have leadership responsibilities, but it's servant leadership. Good leaders want to make sure that the people that are under them, under their management or under their leadership, he wants to make sure they bloom and blossom. He wants them to grow. He, he's not there to stifle them. He's not there to say, ba ba ba, I'm the leader. Did you not get that? No. He's there to say, what can I do to be a blessing to you? And what can, doors can I open? What, you know, so I wish we were producing those kinds of men in the Christian uh, culture and in the Christian schools. Um, but we do live in a society that's got a lot of confusion. The confusion is everywhere. Um, and we also have to adapt to the world that we're in. Some women don't have any choice. But we also need women sometimes in, in professions. Aren't we glad to have women doctors? God never meant for women not to have educated minds. That's why He gave them a mind. We're not... Uh, I'm trying to be careful here. We're not in some religions where, you know, we want the wife to stay home barefoot and, yeah. Um, 
No, but that doesn't mean that she should abandon the most important responsibility that God gives her, and that is if God gives her children, that's her God-given most beautiful responsibility. Now, that's under the leadership with her husband and with her husband. God does have distinct roles, but those distinctions are not shouldn't be at war with one another. We live in a world that's got gender wars going on all the time. And, and the world that we live in constitutes value by either how much money you have in the bank or what kind of position that you hold. But God's realm does not look at value that way. The, what makes us valuable is not how smart we are or how charismatic we are. What makes us valuable is not how much money we have in the bank or how much education we have or what position we hold. What makes us all valuable is that we're God's child, we're His son, we're His daughter. That's where value should be found. But our world has got that mixed up, so they're trying to figure out how to make everything just and fair for everybody. So. Uh, anyway, I don't want to get into a lot of that except to say, as Christians, we need to try to apply that principle, but we not, need to apply it with wisdom. Ellen White was very wise. She said, young women should be taught, a, uh, educated for a job or some kind of trade. Why? Because we live in an uncertain world. I, even if she marries a fine Christian husband, what if he gets killed? What if he dies? He gets a disease. She has no way to support herself and her children. No. Use some practicality here. Um, so young women should be prepared to be able to step in the workplace and do whatever they might have to do someday, even though it may not be the ideal. Sometimes men today in the society can't earn enough money to keep the family together. So sometimes you have a woman having to step in and earn uh, money um, kinds of things. So I, I, we need to be careful we're not judgmental in this, but there is an ideal that we get from Eden, and it's a beautiful ideal. But we live in a broken world, a sinful world, and I would be first to tell any young woman get your education or get your training, whatever you need, that before you have a family, that you've got something you can fall back on if you need it. And then we may need you, you may get those kids raised someday, and we may need you uh and uh and some kind of uh work and so forth and a good husband is saying amen i i want to see my wife bloom and blossom okay i got that a little bit out of the way but not totally uh because i got to come back to adam here for just a moment and uh how is it that adam then uh i mean what what happens here when adam falls adam is, eve is deceived uh, and I'm, I've shared a little bit of that before, but he, she's, she's just flat out uh, what snookered is the word I was wanting to. Yeah, she, yeah, she was just snookered into it. She was deceived, and God looked at that. Maybe it's still sin. That's not not my point. But Adam was not deceived. But how was, how was it that she was really deceived? She I mean, 
been at. Well, I, that's fair. That's fair. Um, she made some choices. They were not sin. It was not sin to leave her husband's side. It wasn't smart, but it wasn't sin. It wasn't sin to go and look at the tree. It wasn't smart, but it wasn't sin. But she put herself on temptation ground at that moment. And therein is the danger. Now, temptation is not temptation unless it's attractive. Am I right? In other words, you know, if you're trying to attract me with chocolate mint ice cream, that, that, has, that has some attraction. Yeah. If you're trying to attract me with 92% chocolate, You get my point. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a little bit once in a while won't hurt you. <laughs> Somebody should have said amen. No. no. Uh, let, come back to your point. And it, it's a very good point. So she's on temptation's ground. At that moment that she's tempted, Satan then is able to spin a very attractive alternative to God's command. And that's what he did. And she bought it. That's why I said the deception doesn't excuse her. But she bought into it. The difference was that when she showed up in front of Adam, Adam basically says, how could you do this? Let's just, let me eat it and we'll die together. He's not, he's not, he's not buying into a spin. He's making a clear choice that I would rather die than to be without you. And there we go. Yeah. Right. I don't know if that helps a little bit. It doesn't take the choice out of Eve. We... We don't know. I, I, I tend, we, there's a tendency for us to think that he would not have, that he would not have bought it. Um, women, forgiving women, I know somebody will say, you're stereotyping. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, but women... And together they could have resisted probably. Um, uh, a woman is designed, and we all know women are different. Men are different from women. That's not bad. That's good. God made us to complement one another, not to compete with one another. So a woman is more emotionally tuned. That's why she makes a better mother. I mean, why she makes a good mother. Because she, she, she feels the, the emotions. And so a man is more, uh, I'm stereotyping a little bit. Not everything's 100%. Okay, just put the disclaimers in there. A man is more stand back and a bit more objective. He's not as emotionally pulled into something. So, you know, Adam is going to sit there and say, yeah, right. Whereas Eve might be more inclined to say, oh, really, to be, you know, and then the emotion starts kicking in. And then 
then the next thing you know, emotion is informing your decision instead of your head informing your decision. And that's why God put man and woman together. We actually need each other very much. Um, a woman needs a man's decisiveness and his more objectiveness. And a man needs his wife's sensitivity so that she there, there's an understanding of that. So I think together they would have been probably fine, but Satan catches her by himself. The other thing is that Satan may have waited for that opportunity. We don't know everything. They may have wandered by that tree many times, but never alone. It's only when she's there alone, because Satan's already figured out the deal. He figured out that he's not going to get Adam on, on that kind of a deal. But he knows how much Adam loves his wife. Okay, now we're talking about something very, now we're talking about very, very powerful influence. And I say to women, you have a lot of influence. Be careful how you use it. Yeah, I had a man or two saying amen then. Yeah, it's, true. it's true. It's true. Well, yeah, that, men have emotions, no question about that. But my point is that Satan had already figured that out. So if he can get Eve by herself, he will then use her as his conduit to get Adam because he knows Adam could look the serpent in the face and say, go jump in a lake. I don't want anything to do with you. But Eve, beautiful Eve, and he loves this woman. Oh, this Satan knew would be very, very difficult for Adam. Okay, yeah. Uh, if we go back to heaven, when Satan was proud and tempting the other angels, Ellen White says that God fled with Satan to, to reform, to come back. So there was a point when when he could have been forgiven, and Satan in heaven could have been forgiven. And this has been a question I talk about a lot. Uh, so I guess I'm asking or I'm stating, I think that Eve would have been forgiven at that point if Adam hadn't been fallen. Is, it, is that a fair... I, we're getting into an area that I, it starts being speculation, and I, I want to be very careful. I've thought about that a lot. The great controversy probably would have continued to rage in the world, but not with as much effectiveness. If you only get half the equation, but you don't get the other half, um, then, then the offset is much stronger. We don't have any offset. Both of our parents fail, and so death has passed now to all of us. We're not guilty for their sin, but we feel the effects. So that every child born into the world is not automatically a sinner. But it's not a matter of if they will sin. It's only a matter of when. And that's because of the fall of what it's done to all of us. It, it will still cost the death of Christ. It will still cost the death of Christ. But we might have had a, a stronger thing. But anyway, evil in this point has got its best opportunity. 
uh, I don't believe in the perfection of evil because evil is never perfect, but there is, you know what I mean by that. In other words, it's worst case scenario. But let me go back to this. So if, if the second Adam, at first Adam is fallen, the only way that you can get the human race back is to get another Adam. So where are you going to get that Adam? You're not going to get it from it. There, there's, some, there's some conditions for this. First of all, all of us came from Adam. Am I right? The first Adam. We're all related to him. And so the whole human race comes from that first mother and first... I, I laugh at these scientists that study this genetic stuff. You know, they came up first of all and they said, you know what? We discovered the whole human race came from one mother. And before the creationists could say, yeah, did we tell you so? You know, they add that sentence, but it wasn't Eve. Oh, really? <laughs> and then a few years ago, they discovered, you know what we discovered? We discovered the whole human race came from one father. <laughs> and before we could say, yeah, we told you so, they, but it wasn't Adam. <laughs> yes, it was, just like the Bible said it was. It was that Adam and that Eve. We came. So here's the condition. You have, to have, you have to have somebody from which the whole human race comes from. To be the father of the human race, you have to have somebody. And you also have to have somebody that's human. The only place you can go to find the first condition is the Godhead. Because they made us. The only place you can go. An angel cannot do this because an angel does not create us. So when Jesus became a baby in Bethlehem's manger, he fulfilled condition number two. Now he can. He's the only human being on the planet in history or the future that could be that second Adam. The Bible maybe says the last Adam. If he fails, the human race is lost. We don't understand sometimes how much we owe the Savior. And he did not come into it like Adam came to it. Adam came with both hands free and in front of him. Jesus has both hands tied behind his back, in, in a sense. So let's, let's look at this second Adam while wow, time goes fast, doesn't it? Uh, but this is important to nail all of this down. So when you read the New Testament, you hear the Apostle Paul refer to these things. The Apostle Paul is not anti-woman. He's just simply reflecting the realities of the creation and how that should work uh, among us and, uh, and, and our own relations with each other. Okay, let's look at verse... I know I've got the, the lesson. You're going to have to follow along in that, but I need to, to move through here. So we know how death spread to all men. Look at verse 13. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed when there was no law. What is he saying there? He says if you don't know to do right, then God doesn't impute it to you. To him that knows to do right and does it not to him, it is sin. So he's not imputing it unless you know. So there wasn't until there was a formal understanding of the law of God. And of course, we know that some of the law is written in our heart, at least. Nevertheless, verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. He says, even though people were ignorant, they're still dying. 
and death is the wages of sin. So sin still will kill you, even if you do it in ignorance. So the whole human race is in need of this second Adam. Nevertheless, death reigned to Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Verse 15, raise your hand if you have a question. Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense, that's Adam's, many died, much more by the grace of God and the gift of grace by the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. Verse 16, And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. Let me explain here what, what he's saying here. If I had an, a pure glass of water in front of you, how easy would it be to pollute that glass of water? About one second, right? I just reach down, grab a little dirt and sprinkle it in there and you will not drink it. Am I right? Unless you're about to thirst to death or something. You're drinking water, right? And that's pure water, right? And you have confidence that it is. Yeah. Let me ask you a question. To get that pure enough for you to drink it, what do I have to go through to do that? It's a lot more work to unpollute it than it is to pollute it. And that's what he's saying. He says, look at the marvel of this. He says, one man's act gave us all death and sorrow. But one man's other act was so powerful that it reversed it. Isn't that powerful? That's what the second Adam means to us, to you and to me. All right, let me, let me go on uh, uh, down through here. Uh, look at verse uh, 17. For if by one man's offense, chapter 5, looking at verse 17, Chapter 5 of Romans, seven, verse seven, 5, 17. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through one Jesus Christ. I'm going to go ahead here. Therefore, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. Now, I want to stop right there because there is, there is some little bit, uh, some misunderstanding here that can be misunderstood. When Jesus died on Calvary's cross, He died for everyone. Now, there are some that said that when Jesus died on Calvary's cross, He automatically justified everybody. We have not normally... We, that's called universal justification. And the argument is that in universal justification, you have to reject God in order to be lost, but you're born saved. 
Well, it doesn't take out choice because they would argue that you, you have a choice to reject it. Sometimes I told somebody one time we were talking about this, as it's really kind of semantics here in a sense, but it's, it's a problem. Let me give you the other side of it. Or did Christ provide justification for everyone and that you must be willing to receive it? Now that's where I lean and that's where the church has leaned and I think that's where we've always leaned. And, and the reason for that is because I don't have the exact text. In the book of John it says, as many as received Him, He gave power to become the sons of God. So in other words, there's a choice that I have to be willing to receive what Jesus has put in the bank for me, if you please. So he, uh, and, that's, and that's what we've taught. The other one is, is uh, doesn't mean that they're not nice people, they're nice people, but are people that have that but, uh, viewpoint. But it doesn't line up with the rest of Scripture. That's my point. So justification is provided for every human being. It's in the bank. But you have to receive Christ in order to have it. If you re and, and you don't automatically have it, and then you have to figure out how to reject it. Now, some people say it's hard to be saved. No, it's easy to be saved and hard to be lost. It's not what the Bible says, by the way. Broad is the way and narrow, you know. And uh, the Bible is very clear that being saved is difficult. It's not dependent on your works. It's dependent on your surrender. You understand? I've got to be willing to utterly surrender. Uh, some people say, why do you ask people to quit smoking before they're baptized and to, you know, to do some of the other things? Well, it tests people's surrender. That's what it does. Harold. Yes, it's 100% available for all of us. But it doesn't, it doesn't, it's still us. That's right. Provided it for us. The whole human race is us. It was. God already had a plan in case. You see, God takes a big risk when He makes free human beings. That, that's a big risk. He could have just kept the universe to Himself, enjoyed the stars and all of His creation, and said, I don't think I'm going to create children that can have a free will and can do what they want to do. There's risk in that. And the risk is that if we do that, we're going to lose a lot of children. And then I might even you lose you, Jesus, to try to rescue them. But they counted the cost before they created. That's why I said that's when the plan of salvation is all done and finished, the marvelous accomplishment, which is incredible, will be that God will have a universe that's both free and sinless. It's an incredible accomplishment. 
We'll never be slaves. I mean, how many of you want robots for children? You know, they're, they're, they're creating robots today. Have you, have you seen all this robot stuff that they're creating? Some of it's pretty scary stuff. But the reason they want to create robots is they want slaves. And the, and the slave will do whatever they program into it. We don't want children that way, do we? When your child looks at you and puts his arm around you and says, I love you, Daddy, you want that to say, that's not a tape recorder, by the way. <laughs> that's coming from the heart of that child. That's what, that's what love is all about. God shares His universe, but He shares it at great risk, at huge risk. All right. Um, so... If if you if you in fact even in 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 the text here, the free gift comes to all men, and the result is justification, with the assumption, of course, that a person embraces it and receives it. Verse nineteen: For as one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. They will be made righteous. But what's the if? What? Well, the if is they have faith in the one man. You have to have faith in him. You have to choose to have faith in him. If you don't have faith in him, then you won't, you won't get the, the um, righteousness. Moreover, the law entered that of the offense may abound. In other words, the law entered not to make sin abound, but to help people understand how awful sin was so they can get a remedy. But where sin abounded because of the law coming in, the law comes in, sin becomes clear, it's sin, and it abounds in the mind's but what does God do when He... So He brings the law to help us understand what sin is better. And we say, oh, no. And then He brings in what? Grace. So where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. That's why the law and grace are working together to save us in all of this. Verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Very, very powerful area. Harold. That's why Romans 5 is called the much more chapter. The much more chapter. Well said. Well said. And uh, there's, there's, there's some wonderful depths here in this. I, and I tell people sometimes, we, we have to be careful that, that we don't become too theological. Even Solomon said something to that effect. I don't remember the exact quote of it, but, but we become so minutia that we can't see the forest for the trees. The great truth is here, we lost our first Adam, and the joy is that God provided another Adam for us. And because of that Adam's suffering and death and resurrection... His experience now can become our experience. Isn't that good news? So just, be, just, just like the first Adam passed death to all of us and we're all dying because of it, the second Adam 
if I put my faith in Him, He will give me His experience. Which brings us into chapter 6. What is that experience that we have with Him? Still with me? I know it's a little warm in here. Isn't it too warm in here? Somebody want to try opening that window. It's got to be, got to be better. Uh, maybe we they got one open over there. Well, try that. Let's see if that works. Anything is is there air coming out of that thing? No, that's shutting it down. Is it eighty three? That's why. Okay, let's do our best. All right, we don't we we got another thirty minutes here. Verse chapter six. What should we say then? In other words, what should we say in light of the fact? That hallelujah, we have a second Adam. And you know what? Please. What is good is that the first Adam will be saved by the second Adam. Wow. Now I never thought about that. Did you hear that? He said, What is wonderful is that the first Adam will be saved by the second Adam. And if we're in the second Adam, we get to be saved too. Isn't that good news? So he saves the human race, at least those that want to be saved. He saves the human race. All right, thank you for that thought. I've never had that thought before, but it's a beautiful thought. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that got us into all this trouble and sorrow and heartache? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And then he uses that, certainly not. I like the old King James, God forbid. Uh, certainly not. No, grace wasn't given to us to continue in sin. Why did some of our evangelical friends read this? Grace is not given to us in order to be a license to sin. Grace is given to us to deliver us from sin. To deliver me from breaking God's law. To deliver, give victory in my life. Jesus wants us to have victory. The victory in my life is not what saves me. It's my faith in Jesus that saves me, and it's my faith in Jesus that gives me victory. And we've got to keep that straight in our life, in our mind. Um, so, how shall we who died to sin, oh, that's a strong word, uh, live in it any longer? Verse 3, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus were baptized into His death? How do you die with Christ? How do you die with Christ? That's important to understand that. Let me tell you why. We just read that the law came in, and when the law came in, sin did what? We could say it in our language, the recognition of sin, and we say, oh, no, and then grace came in. Well, that's parallel to this dying business. How do we die with self? Here I am, and there's God's law, and I look at that law, and I say, Oh, no. Oh, no. I, I got real, real trouble here. So what I do is I repent in sackcloth and ashes. And when I do that, I die. Repentance means I turn from my sins. Isn't that right? So to die means to repent. To die means that I turn my back on it. 
to die. He says, I might have loved you, whatever sin you were, but I don't love you anymore. I don't want to ever see you in my life again. In front of those Ten Commandments, I die. Because that law has one sentence for sinners. One. Just like that snake that crawls toward your toddler, you have one sentence for it. Am I right? That poisonous snake? One sentence. And kill it. That, that, that thing has got to die because it'll keep killing us. I mean, it, it'll just keep perpetuating this mess that we've got. It's got to die. So when I see the law, now, I don't only see the law and it's that way. I am seeing it also in the Son of God. And I see what it cost Him. And that brings me to repentance. And I die. Now, listen to the next verse. Listen to the next verse. Therefore, because we've had this death, therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. Now, we all understand that baptism is the death and the resurrection. Adventists have got that right. By the way, the best way to celebrate the resurrection is not every springtime. I mean, that's fine if you want to do that. Nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing. But, but the way we really celebrate the resurrection according to the New Testament is you go out and you win a soul. And then when that soul is baptized, we're saying, Hallelujah, we're celebrating the resurrection. But we are buried with Christ, and He uses baptism to help illustrate that. So we're buried. Now that word buried is important. When you bury something, you put it out of sight because it becomes rotten. Is that a good word to say? You, you want it to, to go away forever. You bury it. You can't afford to have it above ground because it's dead. And that's what this old self needs to do. It's got to be... It's not only got to be repented of, it must not only die, it's got to be buried. What does Paul mean when he says, I die daily? I, it, it, that, that is, that's a good question. I think what he's saying is that I reconstitute my commitment. What we're really talking about is a commitment here. Uh, and so he wakes up every morning and he says, I buried that thing with Christ and I'm never going to dig it up. I, I am going to stay dead. Now, if you'll, if you'll hang on just a minute, I'm going to answer that question even better. It's a very good question. I'm going to answer it. I'm getting to it. So I get to verse 11, I'm going to answer it. Okay, you still with me? All right, stay, stay right here. Verse, verse uh, 4, Therefore we were buried with Him through baptism into death and so forth. Now look at verse 5. Uh, hallelujah for verse 5. For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly, ah, I love that word there, certainly, we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. 
So when I die in repentance and I'm heartbroken, I leave this life. And I said, I want this thing dead. The Ten Commandments have killed this old man and I've buried it through repentance with Christ. God doesn't leave me dead. He doesn't leave you dead. He reaches down and touches you with His finger and resurrects you. So you go through the likeness of the death you shall also certainly come up in the likeness of His resurrection. Now let me tell you a profound truth here. We may be all dying in this room because we're all, as I said earlier, old age positive. But when you give your life to Christ, you form a union with Him. And if you look at, I think it's Desire of Ages 388, that union means that your life, and I can't explain it, don't ask anybody to explain it because nobody can explain it. It's just revealed to us. It's just the truth. That life is united with Christ. Your life is hid in Christ. It is vert by virtue of that union that you come up in the morning of the resurrection. This is not just merely symbolic. It's not merely symbolic. There's a union. I heard uh, the song last night by... Oh, so beautiful. Just before our, our minister preached. Yeah, yeah. And he said, when the time comes to die... Remember what the rest of the song was? Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus now. Don't let me ever be separated from Him. So when the time comes to die, I have my Savior. That's why for Christians, we don't want to die because we love life. But we should never be afraid to die. Follow me? We're not afraid to die because we have a union with Christ. So what Christ went through as a second Adam, we go through not only spiritually, but we go through literally so that when we die, we're still united with Christ, even in death. We don't know anything. We, we're in a sleep, but we're still united with Christ. And when he says, wake up, we wake up because our, his life has become our life. Certainly we shall be united with him in his resurrection. Mm. We can become so united with Him that... But we are also, He understands, and I'm going to come back to His question here in just a moment, that He asked, and we'll get to that in just a moment. 
But it, it, the Apostle Paul says in Colossians that it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's not theory. There's a reality. Please. Yes, I, I wish I had time to take you to John chapter 4 because it's, I mean, uh, John chapter 14. It is so clear there. Um, I'm just going to give it to you as a, in, a, in a quick version. It, Jesus says to his disciples at that point, he's getting ready to go to his father. So they're obviously two different people. But then he says, if you've seen me, you've... Have I not been so long with you that you don't know me? That's mysterious language. I, any way you cut it, he said, I, I'm going to my father with two different people, but if you've seen me, you've seen the father. You don't even need me to show you the father because you've seen me, you've got the father. Powerful. And then he does the same thing with the Holy Spirit. He says, I, now you can count with me. I do this in some sermons, so some of you may have heard me do this, but you can count with me. This is John chapter uh, 14, verse uh, 16. Count how many people I have here. Or persons or beings. I, how many do I have? I will pray the Father. Now how many do I have? And He will send another. Now how many do I have? It's nonsensical to make the another one of the first two. That's, it's just totally and completely nonsensical. It can't be. There's three. And another means another like the first two can't be any other way. That verse is the revelation of what often is called the Trinity or the Godhead uh, and, and the Scripture. Now, now listen to what Jesus does, though. I'll send you another. There's three different beings there. I'll send you another. And then he turns right around and he says, I will not leave you orphans. He said, I'm, I'm sending this person to take place, my place. I will not leave you orphans. Now listen to this. This is mysterious language. This is powerful. I will come to you. Even though there are three personalities, three different beings, they are one. No one can explain the oneness. And the people that try to explain the oneness either reject the revelation of the three or they get into areas they have no business getting into. Ellen White says trying to explain the nature of God, silence is golden. And we should just accept the revelation. You, your mind can't understand it or grasp it. So here's the joy, and you brought it up so nicely, that if the Holy Spirit comes into my life, He also brings the living Christ. So the living Christ can be at the right hand of God, as He says in Colossians chapter 3, and at the same time in chapter 1, He can be in me, and the fact that He's in me is my hope of glory. Which means that that union with Christ by means of the Holy Spirit is absolutely essential to our salvation. Please. And in Galatians chapter 2 verse 20, not I, but Christ. Amen. So Christ lives in me. Amen. Yeah, that's, that's powerful. So anyway, that, thank you for bringing that up. And... Uh, I, and I'm, I'm convinced that people that get off on the Godhead try to explain stuff they have no business trying to explain, then they end up denying the very revelation itself. I saw your hand. 
I mean, can you comprehend a being who can be all over the world at the same time in every language and speaking to every person on their own personal needs all at the same time? I, you, no, there's no mathematician in the world that can, 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 can even get anywhere near with a, a mathematical formula that can understand how one being can do that. It's a, that's because God is beyond our comprehension. We cannot comprehend Him. He, there's a great mystery there uh, that we should rejoice in. But God reveals to us the truth. Now, I don't want to lose your question, so I'm coming down the track here and I'm watching the clock. All right, here we go. Uh, so, I, and then he talks about how, you know, this has to have dominion. You can, you can get the picture there. But look at verse 11. Look at verse 11. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead to sin. I like the New American Standard Version translation just a little better. It says, consider yourselves to be dead. Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word reckon means you count yourself. Now, what if, if you consider yourself, what is he actually saying here? Well... Your old man, that old selfish man, he died. But he's not dead, dead. He's not dead, dead yet. And because he's not dead, dead, he's still a problem. Yeah. Now, I've used this illustration, and other people have used it, so you may have heard it some, somewhere, and I'll happily give it to whoever wants to use it. But, and like all illustrations, you have to be careful with it. Now, I don't have a chalkboard up here. If I don't, I don't have... Yeah, I do, too. Let's see if this works. Let's see if this works. Let's see if this thing is working. Oh, good. All right. All right, here we go. I'm no artist, and I don't need to be to get this across. All right, that's a heart. I think you can figure that out. So in our heart, our affections, there are, there's two things. This is a throne. Okay, what do you do from a throne? You rule. You give orders. Am I right? That's what you do right here. You're giving orders all the time. Nobody, who forced you to come to this? I don't see any little kids, so no... <laughs> He's having too much fun. He's having too much fun. Uh, I should have known. I should have known. Okay, I don't see any little kids that anybody, uh, you know, pulled in here. So you, you, you said, no, I'm going to that class. I, I, I made an executive decision. I'm going to that class. You could have gone to some other class. You could have done anything else, whatever you want to. But you came on your own. That's an executive decision. You're doing that all the time. You're making choices. By the way, as I told one person one time, uh, well, I'll save that. I'll save that for a minute. So there's a throne in everybody's life. When you are born, guess who sits on that throne? Mr. Self. Am I right? He sits on that throne, Mr. Selfishness. So you give orders, but Mr. Selfishness gives orders based on selfishness. Is that correct? Okay, and Mr. Selfishness always going to break God's law because God's law is based on selflessness. 
That's right. That's why you shall not steal. You just, you just go right down. They're all based on unselfish love. But selfishness will do, makes decisions based on self. And, uh, but let me tell you something, that, that this old man is a tyrant. At some point in your life, you're going to recognize the fact that if you leave that guy on your throne giving orders, he'll kill you. He'll kill you. And the other problem is you've got, you can't just get rid of this guy because you're innately selfish yourself. So what do you do? You see Jesus, the mighty warrior, and you say, Jesus, please get this guy out of my life. And Jesus says, I'll be glad to. Now there's something else in your heart. This is a jail. So what does Jesus do? He comes in and he takes his old self off the throne and he throws him in here. So he's in jail. Now who sits on your throne? You and Jesus have made a union. You made a pact together. And he says, let me control your life because you haven't done too good with it. Isn't that right? And so this is where the rubber really meets the road. Are you willing to turn your life over to Christ? I mean, are you really ready? To, I mean, that's a tough question. You've got to get right down to the very inner core of who we are and say, Jesus, I'm willing to trust you with my life. You make the decisions from now on. A good person to read about that is George Mueller. Read George Mueller's life. You want somebody's life where a man was really surrendered to the Lord. And we can be that way by the grace of God. So now who sits on my throne giving orders? Jesus sits on my throne giving orders. But the old man is not dead, dead because he's where? And the reason he's in jail is because you are me. We're not dead yet. Literally dead. So as long as we're literally live, he's, he's going to be in jail. Now, I don't know about your old man. I think I know about my old man. I'm talking about that selfish man. And I want to tell you that what you want to do with this guy is not to feed him. You want to starve him to death. What you want to do is get him to the place that he's comatose. That he, that he just can't respond. Because as long as he's got breath and as long as he's got life, he's going to try to help. Does he like being in jail? No, he wants to be in charge. So what's he going to do? So he, he's down here in jail and this is miserable and Jesus is on the throne and he's saying to himself, I'd sure like to get back on that throne. Oh. And so he says to you, Remember, you have a choice, am I right? So he says to you, hey, you remember me? Me. Remember those good times we used to have when I was in charge? Remember that? And he goes down that road and you say, yeah. By the way, sin does have its 
pleasures or it wouldn't be attractive. But it's pleasures that don't last. That's the problem with the end it bites like a snake. So he says, he says, um, well, you remember. Well, by the way, who has the key? Who has the key to the jail? You do. That's exactly right. Why doesn't Jesus have the key? Take away your choice. You have the key. So he says, look, 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 we just think of a good time we could have, but you, you just unlock the door. So in a moment of weakness and temptation, you, reach in the, you unlock the door, and he jumps out of there, and the first place he goes is right to the Mr. Decision Maker. Now remember, this is a parable, so you understand that. He grabs Jesus off the throne and throws Jesus in the jail. And he climbs back on the throne and he says, now you can, I'm giving the orders now. That good time we had, that's go for it. But Jesus is not dead either. And then you start hearing the voice of Jesus. Are you really happy you did that? How do you feel about that? Oh, Lord, why did I do I love you so. Okay. You got the key. So, Lord Jesus, please forgive me. Please. Jesus kind of grabs that old guy and throws him in the jail and locks the door. You want this guy, you don't want to feed him. That's why in the Adventist Church Manual there's a thing called Christian Standards. They're not there to be legalistic. They help you to get started on the path of putting the old man down. Now, if you read uh, Romans chapter, I mean, not Romans, I don't have time to get in there. If you read chapter 12 of Hebrews, Jesus talks about crucifying Christ afresh. He talks about, and the word there is really to continue in rebellion, continually willful sin that you can find yourself in a place where there's no more mercy. Not because God has got a checklist and says, well, you just crossed the line. No, it's just because you come to a place that you harden your heart. And you put Jesus in the jail and you let Jesus get weak and you let the old man get strong, and he takes over your life again. Jesus dies out of your life, and he doesn't come back. Now, listen, Jesus doesn't give up easily. How many people have you known that gave the Lord their life and their heart, and then they left the Lord and became a fool? And then somewhere along the way, you may have looked at him and said, boy, he's just not living, he just... But somewhere along the way, the Spirit of God and the Lord Jesus grab them back. There was a story by uh, happened in Ellen White's day. You know, she'd get these visions. How would you like to be a prophet? Don't, don't lie. I wouldn't line up for that job. I mean, the prophetic gift's a nice gift, but 
I wouldn't line up for that job per se because she, she had a vision about this man's life and she sat down and wrote his whole life and what would happen and everything and just put it in an envelope and sent it to him. He was mad at Ellen White. He saw it was from Ellen White. He took and threw it in an old trunk. Le, you know, just left the Lord, le, went down a terrible road. And then somewhere 25 years later, the Lord got a hold of his heart and said, and he, he repented and he gave his heart to the Lord. And one day he was going through that old trunk and he found that unopened letter that he'd totally forgotten about from Ellen White. It was all yellowed now. He opened it and he began to read the story of his life for the last 25 years. He could have been spared all of that. Thank God that he doesn't give up easily. I mean, the reason I know he doesn't give up easily, he doesn't go to the cross to suffer that kind of suffering just to say, oh, well, I didn't make it with that one. No. He will pursue you and pursue you and pursue you until you make an irrevocable decision, decision to keep him in the jail. He will not let go easily. That's why Paul says, I die every day. I put it in my little parable. He's saying, old man, I'm not feeding you today. No, you're not getting any food today. You're not getting any bad television. You're not getting any bad things. You're not getting any bad thoughts. Any bad thoughts come through, I'm kicking them out. You're not getting fed today. I hope, yep, yeah, I'm telling you right now, I hope you get real weak because I really don't want to hear from you again. Does that make sense? That's why we have Christian standards, not a legalistic checklist, but to help us by the grace of God not to feed that old man. For I am buried with Christ. I die and am buried with Christ. And if I am buried with Christ, certainly I shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection. Here's the call of chapter 6. We're called to live the resurrected life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this marvelous chapter, for what it means to us. And I just pray that as we leave here today, that each one of us will be determined by your grace and power, that we'll plead with you, Jesus, help me not to feed that old man. Help me not to set anything before my eyes I ought not to set before my eyes. Help me not to hear stuff I ought not to hear. Help me not to choose, Heavenly Father, to do or think things I ought not to think. Give me strength, Father, not to strengthen that old man. But may he ever be dead in my life. And may I live, precious Heavenly Father, may we live the life of the resurrected Jesus. In His wonderful name, Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.